Welcome to Neither Jew Nor Greek, a podcast where we engage in scholarly and scriptural conversations about the cultural divisions and the community of Christ followers, which prevent us from walking together in unity. I am your host, Amatayo Banjo, and you are invited to come and dine. Welcome to another episode of Neither Jew Nor Greek, where we discuss the vision of unity from the perspective of the gospel and the challenges that have served as barriers to that vision. I am your host, Amatayo Banjo, and in today's episode, we tackle the subject of fake news. About 67% of Americans believe that fake news have, has caused a lot of the confusion that we face today. Um, in fact, a recent poll showed that um, there's a huge share of adults who trust national news less and less. Um, from 2016 to 20, 2021, there's been a decline in trust in national news and local news to tell the truth in the United States. And according to a survey um, that was polled in December 2020, about 40% of individuals over 16 years old reported being very confident um, to be able to distinguish between real news and false information and um, about 54% were somewhat confident with about 6.6% having little faith in their ability to determine what's true on, um, when it comes to news. So I have invited Dr. Bala Musa uh, from Azusa University, Pacific University, to discuss some of the issues that we are um, bringing up today and engage in a discussion about the role of the Christian faith and managing the impact of fake news on our well-being, relationships, and even uh, potentially our political decisions. Dr. Musa is a communication studies generalist. He teaches human communication, corporate communication, media studies, and journalism courses. Uh, he employs a learner-centered integra integrative approach to teaching and makes learning relevant, contextual, transformative, and engaging. His research interests include mass media ethics, communication and conflict, international and development communication, as well as media and popular culture. He is very active in many national, regional, and inter international academic and professional associations, and he currently serves on the editorial board of the American Communication Journal, as well as the Journal of African Social Sciences and Humanities Studies. So thank you, Dr. Musa, for being here. Thank you for being willing to engage in this conversation. Um, I'd like to start off- Thank you, Dr. Banjo, for the opportunity to engage in the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to start off, given your history uh, in, in journalism and media studies, um, I, would, I was wondering if you could share with our audience, if you could describe the history of journalism and the, its relationship to political information and its impact on, on audiences and shaping our political world. Yes, thank you. Again, you can look at journalism from a local point of view. And when I say local point of view, you can talk about it, say, from the context of the United States, but I will take it uh, a little bit uh, further or go more even to a previous time when we think about the rise of journalism in the royal palaces of Europe. Uh, the idea of Acta Diona being the first so-called newspaper that was created in Caesar's palace to update the society on what was going on in the empire. And all governments through history have created different media to keep in touch, to educate their citizens, to inform their citizens, or give the perspective 
of the administrations and government what is going on. So it provides a link to the citizens and to also get a feedback from the citizens to those in power. And that has continued to be the case. And in the rise of the new nation in the United States, journalism played a very significant role in mobilizing the people, in communicating between uh, the people and, and the leaders, and eventually helping to fight for the independence of, of the country. And till today, you can see how much impact there is in terms of different citizens using the media to propagate or to advance viewpoints, to communicate with different sectors of society and the government being invested in the kind of information that is circulated in society. So the two can hardly be separated in terms of journalism, political communication, and government communication. So politicians are interested in what the citizens are knowing and how they want to mobilize their citizens. Citizens want to, the government to be sensitive, to be aware of what they're thinking. And in any democracy in particular, we cannot separate the role of journalism and political communication in those societies. Particularly now that we're in the era of social media, we see more and more of citizen engagement to influence political decisions and for the politicians to feel that they are able to communicate their messages to the electorate. Wow. Well, you, as you were sharing, um, I was thinking about Robert McChesney's, uh, well, at least he, are, he made an argument for this democratic theory, which argued that the role of the news media is to empower its citizenry. But he often critiques the media, um, historically he has at least, that we are not being empowered, um, especially because of all of these different biases, mostly biased towards financial gain that's kept us from, from being empowered. So I'm curious whether or not, because you said we, see, we still see it today, but I'm curious whether or not you think that um, the news media is still serving, um, serving that role that it used to. And if, if so, uh, that's great. But if not, what happened? What do you think happened that led to this? So the, that's a very good uh, point to make. The, the challenges have always been there because most communication flow from a particular point of view. And when we think of journalism, there are different philosophies of journalism. Mm -hmm. And the, whichever philosophy a news medium, a news or even a political culture embraces will determine how useful, how effective they are in contributing to democracy. So is journalism a public service? That is a kind of philosophy that is going to be focusing more on educating the citizens, empowering the citizens. Mm -hmm. But there are certain situations where even the people in leadership do not want to have a truly empowered citizen because that holds them even more accountable. Mm -hmm. And so you will find a situation where there's more emphasis on which uh, propaganda or limited information or information that is intentionally serving a particular agenda. Mm -hmm. And over time, as corporate journalism has grown, profit has become a determining factor and a philosophy of journalism in of itself. And then there's the partisan philosophy of journalism. So for the extent to which journalism advances democracy is going to be correlated to which of these philosophies drives the practice of journalism in a culture and at any given time. So we have seen situations where, yes, people get informed about what their government is doing and they hold the people, they hold the government uh, accountable. Other times, the people are led by certain information that is either not wholly true or is biased or insufficient and they make decisions based on that or they are carried along 
to serve particular interests of particular groups. And therefore, the people are not truly empowered because they are not fully informed and, and uh, educated on those particular issues. Yes, yeah, so it's both. There are both functions and dysfunctions when we think about the role of journalism, uh, particularly with regards to democracy. Mm -hmm. they, when they are able to fully educate the people, the people have access to the inf the right information, and uh, they're fully aware and can make informed decisions. Mm -hmm. It helps to strengthen democracy. But then, when different interest groups, or for a number of other reasons. The people do not get the right information, do not access the information, or they are led by a particular agenda that are hidden, mm -hmm. then they are, they are disempowered, or they are, their society is fragmented, or the uh, the more powerful have the voice, and those the rest of society are not able to articulate their own point of view. So it's a good point to acknowledge that it's not a one-way street of journalism always empowering or disempowering. It's always uh, something to be very cautious of, that is the importance of media literacy, to be able to know when that function is actually serving a positive role or a negative role in the democracy. Right. I mean, you articulated that well. Um, and I, I'm going to go back to some of the points you made, but you did mention propaganda. And so I'm curious how you would differentiate propaganda from what now people are, um, the term people are using today is these disinformation campaigns. So what distinctions, distinctions might you make between the two concepts? So th there are some similarities and, and differences. Okay, so, so let me begin with the, with the similarities. The similarities are that both propaganda and disinformation campaigns are motivated by a particular point of view to present an idea that is for the most part slanted or is not holistic and is designed to accomplish a particular agenda. The difference between this both propaganda and this information campaign and objective and neutral news is that the, the objective journalist, the independent professional media practitioner is, intent, is interested in letting the society or the audience know what are the goings on to the extent of as much factual information as possible. Mm -hmm. And so they will give different perspectives. They will give points of view that may be in opposition, but it gives the individual holistic point of view to make a decision on their own. Mm -hmm. Propaganda, on the other hand, most of the time we have seen propaganda with the use of the, the role of the authorities for the most part, the role of the authorities in pro uh, promoting a particular point of view. So the emphasis is not on the whole truth, it's not on the neutral truth, it's not on the facts, it's the truth that serves the interests of usually those in authority. That for the most part, we associate propaganda with either authority or powerful institutions, mm -hmm. all right? Disinformation campaigns right now have spread a little bit more beyond just powerful institutions and, and, uh, and government organizations. Disinformation is such that different interest groups, sometimes even grassroots organizations, have a particular vested interest and they want to, pro to provide information that serves that particular agenda and that particular point of view. And so both of them in different ways do not start from what you might consider as noble, mm. as ethical, as truthful agenda to let the individual decide on their own. No, they want to manipulate. They want to set 
to determine how you think about a particular issue, what you know about it, and even shape the opinion that you're going to develop uh, on that regard. And so in that way, it is important to know that there are both similarities and differences between those two. And for our audience, I know some people use the term misinformation um, versus disinformation. Could you help delineate the differences between those two for our audience? Yeah, so they lie on a continuum uh, of the degree of the degree of maybe what we can call level of, for one of a better word, nefariousness. Let me use that word, okay? So this information is sort of seen as it's much more intentional, it's much more blatant, it's much more designed where somebody, somebody knowingly mm -hmm. decides to give you false information, decides to promote a point of view that they know is deceptive, that they know that is not holistic. Misinformation, on the other hand, can be out of ignorance. It can be out of the person not even knowing that that information is false or not having the whole fact on, on the, at their point of view. So that is, to me, the difference. This information is much more pernicious mm -hmm. as opposed to misinformation, which sometimes might be out of naivety, might be just innocently spreading information that you yourself did not know that was false in the first place. Right. So I think about my media literacy courses I've taught and um, or any media course, and I'm sure probably you have done the same where we're teaching our students to think critically. And now I'm a little nervous that perhaps I've taught them to think so critically that they don't trust the news. Mm. So we're talking about disinformation um, as this intentional, deceptive um, way that people are trying, some interest groups are trying to uh, persuade or manipulate. Um, Whereas before, like when I would teach on the news industry, I would talk about um, source bias and um, the, the influence of, of money and profit on the kinds of news stories that are being told. How do we help people tell the difference between the news industry having its own agenda um, that tends to benefit their news organization or maybe even a politician and a disinformation campaign where interest groups are trying to manipulate people. How do we detangle those, those two realities? Yeah, it's become more difficult and the climate more uh, complex and, and conflicting. So I experienced the same thing in terms of students wondering if there is any such thing as truth, if yeah. we can actually be, be objective mm -hmm. and whether or not we should be striving for that. And for me, the beginning point is to say that as a professional journalist and communicator, you cannot sacrifice credibility. Once you give up the fight for the struggle toward objectivity, then it's a lost cause, all right? Why should anybody pay attention to what you have to say? If it is all bias, if it is all uh, opinion, if it is all self-interest are driven. So we think that professional journalism, ethical journalism is a goal that, uh, journalists always have to strive for to gain credibility and for anybody to, to at all uh, pay attention to what they are providing. Nevertheless, as I mentioned earlier on, the profit interest, it's always going to intrude and then the partisan interest is going to, to intrude. Mm -hmm. So what is at the heart and the core of a particular medium and organization in their engagement with journalism will determine the extent to which they are going to be committed to neutrality, to objectivity, to independence, uh, to, to truth and to, and to objectivity. Now the, the media organizations, sometimes they, do, they are very open to say, 
or even if they don't articulate that, as you observe, you can know that they have a sympathy for a particular point of view. They have mm -hmm. a, a particular uh, agenda in, in society. I mm -hmm. think it's both a good and a bad thing. The good is in there that we kind of know where that person is coming from and we can take their point of view with a, a grain of salt, mm -hmm. knowing that th this is the position they already take on regarding the ideological struggles, the cultural war issues and, and things like that. All right. The bad there is that then it uh, they are not able to provide for us balanced perspectives. They are not able to give us different viewpoints for us for uh, to decide uh, on our own. Now there are individuals who are in the media. Some of them even uh, regard themselves as journalists, but you can see that they do not abide by the ethos of journalism. Mm -hmm. They do not. They do not regard that journalists have these principles and processes that allow them to act with integrity or to provide a balanced and informed news to, to, to their audience. Mm -hmm. For us as people in academic, professors of journalism, we have to begin by letting the students understand what is the objective, what is the mission, what is the goal, and what sets apart a true journalist from some other person who sees the medium as a means of achieving a wide variety of uh, goals. As many people who have, we've seen in history, a lot of organizations or individuals who have gained uh, resources from other means see the media as just another outlet by which to invest in and make as much money as they make in Wall Street or other places. And mm -hmm. so the newsroom begins to get guarded and the business of media begins to grow in those uh, in those establishments. So news is what sells. That's where sensationalism and all that goes along with it begins to, to have impact what uh, people are disseminating. And you as a media practitioner, you are faced with the dilemma whether to go along with a particular agenda mm -hmm. or you want to stand your ground in saying that as a journalist, this is what the profession requires of me and face for sometimes even the consequences of, uh, of that. So it's really a challenging situation. Mm -hmm. And as many more points of view come along, which is a good thing for democracy, mm -hmm. we have to be very careful about the extreme partisanship that again has no respect for uh, truth, has no respect for fact, has no respect for uh, objectivity. Yeah, and I'm wondering whether or not social media and communication technology in general has um, created room for these different interest groups to um, to facilitate these disinformation campaigns. And we've become much more susceptible to that because of the distrust we have uh, in our news organizations. What do you think about that? Yeah, so, so again, it, it remains a, an ongoing debate as to how much blame can we attribute to the media and to the technology, yeah, yeah. all right? So some will say that uh, technology is pliable in our hands, so we blame the user. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you have a good person with good intentions and good character mm -hmm. or, or institution, that person or that young will use the media to advance good goals and good purposes and good agenda. On the other hand, if that medium is in the hand of somebody who has a negative agenda, who has a not so positive agenda, it will serve as a tool to advance that. And we see that very well. So when, when the new media was arising, many of us almost celebrated the opportunity for, in, for, for independence, mm -hmm. for citizen engagement, 
for democracy to thrive. And we have seen dictators as well as uh, effective leaders use, journal use the new media technology to advance their own agenda. So to, to some extent, it's probably not the medium itself. It's much more the user of the medium, and it's much more the society in which it is bred that, in, that determines how it, is, uh, how it functions. That said, yes, the fact that it's the media pro is uh, the proliferation of the media, the availability of many outlets has definitely impacted the mm -hmm. extent to which misinformation, disinformation, or agenda-driven content spreads, mm -hmm. all right? It also has created this fragmentation of niche societies where people don't have to listen to each other. Think about the time when everybody had to wait maybe for the six o'clock or 6.30 news, and regardless of your political point of view, you waited for the two, three main national news channels and you are receiving, you are drinking from one source of information, and from there you begin to form your opinion. But now you don't have to even expose yourself to a point of view or a particular medium that you don't really subscribe to. So you are getting your information from a very narrow point of view that is tailored to, to, to reinforce your viewpoint, your belief. And it's really a very dangerous phenomenon, one to create a, a holistic, well-informed, uh, coherent, uh, dialogue among citizens in order to promote our democracy. Yes, the, the, the proliferation of social media has uh, definitely compounded and uh, uh, exacerbated this challenge of fragmentation, this challenge of uh, uh, of uh, misinformation, and uh, this this challenge of uh, divisions. Let me put it that way in our political dialogue. Yes, um, as communication scholars. Uh, I think we can explore these issues through the lens of agenda setting theory and, and framing. Um, and I'm curious how you think these frameworks help us understand all of the issues you just brought up, because you've mentioned that there's an agenda. There's so many different agendas. So mm -hmm. how do we, how might agenda setting theory and framing help us understand what's going on today with the, with the dissemination of our political news? Yes. So, well, for the sake of those who are not, uh, always with us in this conversation, yeah. it's good probably to explain some of the constructs and concepts that we're talking about. So we talk about agenda setting, we're talking about how the media influence what the audience think about, mm -hmm. all right? What they talk about, the things they engage in in the water cooler conversation. So if we are talking about what is happening in Ukraine, if we are talking about the midterm elections, if we are talking about the, 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 the environmental, crisis or global warming, those things that the media talk about, the philosophy of agenda setting is the idea, the theory, the idea that it influences what the society at large talks about, because we determine that these are important issues. And mm -hmm. so we play them up, we highlight them, and the extent to which we highlight them, they become the things that the rest of the society talk about. And for a, for a season, it was believed that yes, agenda setting is more of also a, a neutral phenomenon, which is that the media influenced what the audience or the society thinks about, but not what they think. Mm -hmm. But as we've seen over time, and the research has also suggested that it's not simply entirely uh, exclusively that, that what that the media by highlighting certain things uh, and re also related to the second concept we talk about, which is framing, giving a particular point of view or putting a particular peg hanging it on a particular emphasis as opposed to another, we in, in a way influence not just what they think, but what, uh, what they think about, but what also 
uh, sometimes they, they think. Now, th there is so many there are so many things going on at the same time that the media cannot provide all that is going on. So the fact that maybe using news values or other criteria, you select these particular points and highlight them, you are emphasizing one over another. And, and uh, they become what we consider as the media agenda. Now, the, 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 with research as well as trends in media, it has become more complex than that. In the past, we always talk about media agenda, all right? But now we find out that, no, there's an interaction between media agenda, mm -hmm. public agenda, and policy agenda, mm -hmm. okay? And it is not, sometimes even what the media cover come from what the citizens have begun to discuss or project and emphasize, particularly with the rise of social media. So it is not a one-way street. You find a situation where an issue can be primed by public agenda. In other words, what the society is, uh, is talking about, and then the media pick it up, or policymakers pick it up, or policymakers influence the agenda or prime the issue, and then citizens pick it up, or the media pick it up. So there's all that interaction between these forces uh, together. And uh, like we said, depending on the issue and depending on the various interests, they can be framed differently. And the way that they are framed, the peg that somebody hangs the issue on determine the way it is being, it is being seen. And there are so many uh, examples of that, okay? If we want to talk about uh, something like uh, the, the many of the hot button uh, debate issues, whether it is uh, abortion or gun control or, or tax, you find out that the way the language by which an individual frames or presents that issue determines how an individual will view it. All right. Think, for instance, uh, tax. For instance, we talk when we talk about the the estate tax or the death tax. Mm -hmm. The estate tax. Many people think of people who are wealthy. They're going to pay the estate tax because if you think that oh, I don't have a lot of estate or wealth to pass on to my children, you you feel that well, wealthy people maybe should be taxed. But if you frame it in terms of the death tax, you know, everybody's going to die someday. So then you begin to look at it entirely differently, the extent to which you will support that or not support that. So framing plays a significant role in what people understand and how they respond to those particular issues. The same goes with how we talk about pro-choice and pro-life and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So you did mention priming um, and priming theory explains the way we process social information and, and what... Um, ideas or attitudes are sort of awakened after we are exposed to a particular kind of information. How can we use this concept to explain how audiences are interacting with political information or how they're motivated to seek it out today? Yes. So, so again, uh, priming is an extension of this uh, discourse of our agenda setting. The areas that we give the most emphasis on all right, the, the way that we project it, the, the way that uh, we, we place them in, in, in the new circle, all of those things create more, give more premium to one subject uh, over another. Mm -hmm. And being aware of that, it, it is important if the goal is to educate, if the goal is to inform, is the, if the goal is to have an empowered uh, citizenry, it, it is important to give them the tools through the element of, uh, of priming and understanding that the way an issue is placed in relationship to other issues in terms of how frequent it is mentioned, in terms of the different avenues through which that same idea comes out, all right? If we just have something that come up maybe in the news once in a while and disappears, it does not register in the conscience uh, and, and the awareness of the 
uh, in the consciousness rather of the of the of the audience all mm -hmm. right but but if it is featured in news if it is something that we we write an editorial about we write a an article a feature article about and almost crusade on that then you see that that gains much more attention and it becomes much more uh, involved in the dialogue in the conversation and in in, in decision making uh, for individuals so the extent to which we consider as as important we determine we be gauged by how much prime that that issue uh, is and how much uh, it remains a significant aspect of uh, public dialogue public uh, decision making yeah, I was thinking that to some degree, uh, I think at times political rhetoric is meant to sort of prime fear, feelings and attitudes of fear um, based on maybe something that has happened in the past. Um, and so I, I just find that that part interesting as well, uh, to the degree that we um, information is sort of used to persuade um, and speak to the affective parts of our processing. Mm -hmm. Some could argue that political speech is simply rhetoric um, and as a, a, having a goal of persuading and influencing audiences. How can we unpack though these strategies? How can we discern the strategies that uh, an actor, a speech actor might be making to get something out of us? You were we were talking earlier about media literacy and that's, you know, if you if you take a comm class and you you get some of those tools but for people who are not taking communication courses how do they how do they learn especially as believers how do we discern um that this is a rhetorical strategy to get me to believe and act in a certain way mm -hmm. so i think it, it begins with us understanding that we have to be agents we don't want to be passive receivers we don't want to put credence on everything that we receive out there, starting with knowing that the political communicator is trying to communicate information that is favorable to a particular point of view. So the use of that rhetoric is determined to shape your point, your, your, your decision or to shape your position on that issue. And it's both good and bad. It's good in the sense that there are things you may not know about a particular candidate's uh, history, all right? So his or her opponent might not tell you all the good about the person. It's the duty, in most cases, the person is going to tell you all the good about themselves, all right? But maybe there are other things that they are involved with that you may not be able to know. But as you listen to that, you have to know also that what the person is saying about his or her opponent or even about themselves is part of the truth and not the entire truth. That's where you take agency there to be able to discern, to be able to cross-check, to be able to look at other points of view and see how much of what is being told tells the whole story, all right? But if you come already to the table trying to get your point of view reinforced because you believe this person and you're going to put blinders on and only believe everything that they say without uh, scrutinizing it, without, without examining it, then you become more vulnerable. On the other hand, if you determine that there is not going to be any truth or value that I can take from this point of from this place because I have a different point of view from that person. Again, you are going to miss out on very important uh, information that could be useful to you. So I think uh, the political rhetoric has its own place. It has its own function mm -hmm. because in a democracy, there needs to be conversation. There needs to be dialogue. There needs to be uh, communication and exchange of, of ideas. 
However, when it is an intentional approach to misinform, to, to, to mislead, to disinform, then it does uh, more harm than good. And, and it is the role of the citizen, on the other hand, to understand that what they are uh, being told has both uh, things that will be of value that are truthful and useful and aspects that may not be as useful and truthful for their own uh, consumption. Right. So what I hear you saying is whether it's um, a speech or something you see on social media, we are encouraged to cross check, always ask questions. Don't take it um, as it is completely in order to get as much information about the topic as possible. These are yes. ways and, 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 and utilize as many sources mm -hmm. as, as opposed to relying entirely on, on one source or one outlet. Right. And then to your earlier point, because for some people I can hear the the the, the uh, response would be, well, I can't trust the media. I can't trust these sources. But to your earlier point, um, we're going to have to exercise some trust and be able to discern between um, when a journalist is being objective or um, engaging in some kind of news organization bias and maintain our expectation of our news organizations to make to to be um, to be objective, to have some kind of um, uh, to practice um, journalism ethics. Did I get yeah. that right, or did you yes. want to clarify? Very true. Very true. You said it well. Okay. Yes, very true. So we are running out of time, but I did want to wrap up with this challenging question. I mentioned I I try to see if we could talk about um, this idea of dissonance because when we think about um, people who identify as Christ followers or followers of Jesus. Um, and their own place in, in the world or in the United States and how they vote and what they think and how they interact with political information spe uh, specifically. I'm thinking about the dissonance that they may be experiencing at times when um, they, they have these beliefs and then they're exposed to information that might trigger fear and they're responding to that. Um, or they're, they're at times may feel like they're being persuaded to do something that doesn't feel right within themselves. Not that you would have the answer to this, but I'm curious about your view on where how a person um, makes sense of that, the, the dissonance that they may be feeling as a believer and as a political actor, along with the way they inter interact with um, these kinds of this kind of messaging that we're talking yes. about. News. Yeah. So in, in so many avenues, we're always exposed to information that might uh, contradict mm -hmm. things we already believe mm -hmm. or that might not align with uh, positions that we've already taken or even actions that uh, we, we, we engage in. So for particularly when it comes to ideas that may contradict our faith, mm -hmm. contradict our belief, contradict our, our, our values, it, it begins with determining what is a core issue to, to a person, to your values as opposed to things that are peripheral, things that are, are, are not fundamental, mm -hmm. all right? So the value of human life, for instance, uh, the value of uh, respect for other people, the value of uh, truth telling, uh, mm -hmm. the value of, uh, service to other people and risk and and, and uh, just a life that is is a noble and uh, life of integrity mm -hmm. the moment you already set out these things in your core and say that these things are of 
importance to me, then as you encounter either ideas or situations where you need to re-examine how you're going to act in relation to those. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the dissonance is still going to be there, mm -hmm. but in terms of resolving that dissonance, you have a reference point. Mm -hmm. You have a yardstick. You have some criteria mm -hmm. that is going to say, this is where the line is drawn for me. Mm -hmm. When it comes to trying to maybe achieve my own agenda at the expense of another person. Mm -hmm. When it comes to devaluing somebody because they are different from me in some form. Mm -hmm. When it comes to uh, dehumanizing another, another person, even if it helps my agenda, even if it advances the, the agenda of my group, you know, mm -hmm. that is where it's going to be for you that this is not, I don't have a crisis with regards to this particular issue. But then on the peripheral issues, that they that are not fundamental to your identity and when i talk about identity i'm talking about when you say i am a this type of person mm -hmm. and in this case talking about if you say you're you're a believer all mm -hmm. right then uh those particular issues are going to be based on the the situation that you're you're dealing with in, in that uh, context because it does not ask you to deny you know uh, your your core belief, your values, and and what you, what what you stand for. Mm -hmm. So we find it going on on a on a uh, continuous basis, mm -hmm. where the members of the of the community would say, "Our because of this is who we are. This is the portion that we should take." Mm -hmm. All right, and and then there may be certain situations where that particular action is not consistent mm -hmm. with what either the group professes or what the individual ha has said that, that, they, that they, they, they stand for. So mm -hmm. I think just understanding when the group's ideas or, a particular, or my interest con conflicts mm -hmm. with say biblical teaching, mm -hmm. which one is going to um, trump or decide my uh, criteria for making a decision in that way. Mm -hmm. So that is very, very, very important to, to know that you have a reference point, mm -hmm. you have a yardstick, you have a benchmark, you have a North Star that you are always anchoring on. Mm -hmm. And that helps you a lot because you, whether it's even just in terms of uh, consumer advertising, not even in terms of, uh, say, political advertising, mm -hmm. you're always going to be exposed to ideas that um, conflict with things that you already either profess know or, or believe and it is important for individuals to say which of these are fundamental mm -hmm. and core to my values and to what i hold as opposed to whichever one which which things are more trivial or secondary or are, are not fundamental yeah i love the way you articulated that it reminds me of um, when i talk to my students about taking more of a negotiated reading of things sort of mm -hmm. being aware that yes there is going to be this conflict there will be this dissonance but you have to decide for yourself what you're going to take away from it how you're going to engage how you're going to interact what values um are you going to in your as you were talking about uh, this um, subject what are the values that you're going to privilege um in terms of being anchored um, within biblical teaching. Um, and the reason I, I say that is because I think it's important to note that there is no 
particular um, party that is that really embodies the teachings, biblical teachings. And so these are the kinds of negotiations that um, believers have to constantly make. So I, I really appreciate the way you, you um, phrase that. Thank you so much for taking time to, to discuss this with us. And um, I hope that this is a, you all found this uh, to be a blessing as we try to make sense of some of the tensions we're dealing with in these, in these times. But my hope is that as we use the tools that you mentioned, we can discern, okay, this information is, is meant to trigger anger and hatred. And that is not um, biblical. This is not who I want to be or identify with as a Christ follower. And so um, this is the action I'll take instead. Just to own, have a little more ownership over how we are interpreting and hearing and receiving um, messages. So thank yeah. you again, Dr. Musa. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in this uh, important conversation. Thank you very much. Have a great one. Thank you for listening. I hope this conversation inspired thoughts that move us toward God's heart for us to love one another as he has loved us. May our light rise in the darkness and may healing reach our land. <laughs>